Politax. What? Politax. <laughs> sounds like a fake corporation. Politax. <laughs> Politax like Corp. Or Interslice. <laughs> oh my God. there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is January 12th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Happy Tuesday. Uh, and from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Good morning, Sarah. How's it going? It's a great day. <laughs> it's a great day. The NHL starts tomorrow. I, 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 I can feel your excitement from across the country. Uh-huh. I have my Flyers hat on right now, so I'm As right there with you. exhales and rolls her eyes. Well, the thing about sports is how, you know, one, one, one college football door closes and then an NHL window opens or something it never ends which is great it's a good time that is a good time we've been saying this for a while this is when these sports should be starting you know yeah let the football end and then start the hockey and the basketball i mean i i think that you know this is this is right Uh, give the football its space (laughs) football needs its space right now we don't need it we don't need it in in december we don't need hockey ever oh sorry did i say that out loud oh Oh, no oh i'm I'm so sorry. sorry I apologize to all our Canadian listeners. <laughs> all of them. She, Hi, she guys. Didn't, she didn't mean that. Yeah. Yeah, she didn't mean that. <laughs> um, Sure. Uh, well, let's talk about football. Uh, let's start by talking about the NFL, specifically our survivor pool. Uh, well, I'm sure out, you want to talk about that yeah, right really, now, yeah. Sarah. Really yeah. perked up on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> starting off our, our, our playoff uh, survivor pool started off pretty interesting. Uh, I... I don't know how you guys did, but I got a win and two points with the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers taking care of football team. Uh, Neil and Jeff, wow, nice, did- nice pick taking uh, Tom Brady against a seven and nine uh, sham playoff team. Good, good uh, work hey, there. Hey, they covered Neil. They covered. That was a significant achievement for them. I want to go back a week. And they to found the both- quarterback of the future. <laughs> And Heineke. They, Heineke. they definitely did not do that. I just want to take us back a week uh, when you guys made your picks. Uh, who did you have again? Uh, I picked Neil? the Seahawks, which was dumb. That's right. Jeff picked the Seahawks. Neil, who did you pick? I took the uh, Steelers. Yeah, uh, that and wasn't that, dumb. That, that one was... went. Um, that one went pretty south pretty quickly. <laughs> Like very quickly, like uh, to the point I did not watch the beginning of the game. I was oh. like, oh, I got some time. It was one of those ones where it's like I'm making, you know, I'm heating something up for dinner. I'll come over, you know, pick it up a little bit into the first quarter. It's like they're already down 21 nothing. What? <laughs> yeah, that was wild. I also I missed the first play, which was, uh, you know, had a lot of action on it, too. And yeah, I was very, very confused. Very, Peyton Manning-esque from that Super Bowl against the (laughs) Seahawks. Yeah. Whoops. Well, so if you guys, I mean, if you want, we could just end the pool right now if you'd like. Um, With you in the lead? Right. If you guys can't bear to go on with it, I totally understand. I'm, I'm happy to do that. Whatever you guys press want. onward, mm. I think. All right. Valiantly. Um, okay. Well, so let's let's make our picks for this next week of the Survivor Bowl, provided you guys do want to go ahead and, and not just crown me the winner. Whatever. Um, so the order this week will be Jeff, Neil, Sarah. Jeff, who are you taking? Um, I mean, I'm not gonna take the Chiefs. 
Uh, even though that's the biggest spread by far. I'm going to take... I'm going to take those Saints. Get revenge okay. for my infamous pick of the regular season where I took the Bucks over the Saints and they lost by 145 points. <laughs> so... <laughs> Three point um, favorites. I don't feel great about this. No, but, it's uh, but it, it, it's not like the the Bucks look dominant against football team. Hardly such, uh, hardly anything close to dominant. So I think the Saints win this one. Okay. All right, Neil. <laughs> Who do you have? I'm going to take the Packers in this one against uh, God knows who at quarterback for the Rams at this point. Um, could be Goff. Could be Wolford. But the um, Wolfman, I think the it's Wolfman. Goff. <laughs> yeah, it uh... seems like it would be Goff. I mean, he played basically the whole game last time, but McVeigh is still being kind of coy about it. Um, and the Rams also like Aaron Donald might be hurt. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? So I, I'm going to go with uh, the Packers at home and they'll probably get just completely destroyed on the ground by Cam Akers and lose. That Rams defense looks awesome. They're playing yeah. well. This, uh, wow, this is really interesting. So I, I was all ready to have a, a very difficult pick because I assumed you both would take the Chiefs and the Packers. Um, should I take the Chiefs now, knowing that I won't be able to use them in the Super Bowl or would only be able to use them for one point in the Super Bowl? But I might have an insurmountable lead by then. Hmm. Decisions, decisions. For yeah, you, I, I was really, you know what? I'm going to take the Chiefs. I'm going to take the Chiefs. I'm going to take the Chiefs. Um, I've talked myself into it. <laughs> um, I, I, I think, uh, I think. See, I learned a lesson from Jeff during the regular season Survivor Pool to not hoard the best teams until the end because then I, I lost with Pittsburgh instead of using them while they had their 11 game winning streak. I used them while they were in the middle of their uh, slide at the end of the season, and then I barely got a win with the Chiefs. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the Chiefs now. I should have I should have learned the same lesson Sarah um uh to not you know hold on to the Chiefs because they rest their starters and I think they'll they'll probably rest their starters again in the Super Bowl. Yeah, oh, yeah, undoubtedly. That's, yeah. that, that's usually what teams do. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> that <is fine>. <laughs> <laughs> on today's show we'll talk about Monday night's college football national championship and what we should take away from the season. We'll also talk a little bit about how the sports world has been affected by the political upheavals of the last week. In particular, how much the WNBA's activism did to flip the Senate, and if the PGA cutting ties with President Trump's golf courses is a sign of things to come. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Last night saw the final of the college football playoff with Alabama dominating Ohio State 52 to 24. Heisman Trophy winner Devontae Smith had 12 receptions for 215 yards and three touchdowns in one half. He left the game injured, but uh, left his mark beforehand. Beyond that dominance, though, on the Andy Staples show, Ari Wasserman pointed out an interesting facet of the matchup. Uh, this is the first time I think Ohio State's played a team that's more talented than it is. And like, that's a long time, you know, in Ohio State, more so than uh, they probably should have over the course of the past few years, has lost games that they shouldn't have lost. When you look at the, the talent composite, and I'm talking about the Purdue's and the Iowa's, but for the most part, they fared very well. Uh, in games where they are playing teams that are similarly talented. And it's like, if you go back and you look at Urban Meyer's greatness as Ohio State's head coach, I think he only played seven or eight games out of the 
entire time where he was playing teams that were similarly talented. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic and like, I don't know how, how far back you want to go and look, but like Ohio state playing Clemson, there was a talent gap in that game too. And when Ohio state got things together, it showed. So, you know, now they have to shoot up for the first time, uh, in six or seven years. And it'll be very interesting to see if they can, you know, manage that because it's a great, easy task to be a wonderful head coach with a great offensive mind who can blow out teams when you're playing teams that don't stack up from a talent perspective. And that's what Ryan day has done for this entire career. So far, it's another thing to be able to scheme up a game plan and beat a team that has more talent than you on its roster. And that's what Alabama is. So, what do, what do you think, Jeff? Was this a case of Ohio State just being completely overmatched talent-wise? Or was there a way for the Buckeyes to have schemed up a game plan that would have maybe worked better? Oh, I, I think it, it was a little bit, you know, the, the Alabama was basically Thanos. They were inevitable. It was going to always come down to this. They were going to destroy whoever played. That's the way I, I think this team was just way better than any other team in the country. Um, and actually, I think a lot of other teams, if they were in that spot, probably would have lost by even more. I mean, you you look at their schedule. It, it was only one game, the Florida game, that was within one score. And most of them were upwards of 20 or 30. So this is pretty, pretty much what they do to everyone. I do think Ohio State um, got some bad breaks. I think losing Trey Sermon on that first drive, what was it, second, third play, was really significant. Um, if you look at what he had done in particular the last two weeks, um, if you combine the, the semifinal and you combine the Big Ten Championship, he had... 60 carries for more than 500 yards um, in two games. So in many ways, he's a big part of their offense, but also just in what he does in keeping Mac Jones and, and those receivers off the in the whole Alabama machine off the field is really valuable. And I think that was um, in many ways their only hope to winning this game. If you go back a few years when um, Alabama did beat Ohio State it, in the in that Sugar Bowl where they went on to win the national championship, uh, they did it ra- mainly by just running Ezekiel Elliott all the time. He had, you know, 230 yards on 20 carries and, and just sort of pounding them on the ground. And I, I think they could have had a path to victory that way. And Master Teague, by the way, came in and, and he played okay. I mean, he obviously scored the touchdown, uh, their first touchdown and, and, and sort of got them going but it's not the same and I think that was a big loss you know while they have depth compared to most college football teams I don't think they have like Alabama level depth so it it just put them in a tight spot from there on out I mean Justin Fields had it it was going to be a shootout they were going to win you know trading touchdowns back and forth every time they punted it was like oh yeah you lost um so it it was pretty much uh I don't think that the way it shaped, sorry, three, two, one, the way it shook out last night, I, I don't think they had much of a chance from the get go. Yeah. I mean, the, the Alabama offense, you know, Najee Harris had 79 yards on the ground and 79 yards through the air. Like they, they were really all phases of that offense was, were, were clicking, you know, with an offense like that, was this the best Alabama team of the, of the Saban era? Yeah, I think it pretty clearly was. I know this is a weird season and we've talked often about how difficult it is to make comparisons just across teams in different conferences within 2020, much less across different 
eras of the game. But if you look at something like the simple rating system at college uh, at at uh, Sports Reference College Football, Alabama's SRS this season was the best of the sort of modern era of college football. If you go back to the start of the BCS in 1998 onward, including the playoff, they were easily the best team. In fact, um, no team is within three points of them. They're the only team to have an SRS of 30 points per game better than average uh, in that era. And yes, it was you know, the offense was really unstoppable. Uh, they scored, what was it, almost 50 points a game, uh, 48.5 points per game this year, which is wild, you know, uh, if you think about it. But I, I think also, as we're talking about this offense, we've seen other great offensive teams during this period of time. Oklahoma has had great offenses pretty perennially uh, in, in recent years. We've seen, you know, like the RG3 Baylor team, Oklahoma State, some of those Mike Gundy, Oklahoma State teams like Des Bryant era type teams. Oregon under Chip Kelly, we've seen uh, teams have comparable, of course, LSU last year, we can't leave them out, comparable offensive performances. And I don't think enough credit has necessarily been given to Alabama's defense. You know, we think of them as being transformed from that era of sort of low-scoring, grinded-out, defensive-minded Alabama teams at the beginning of the 2010s. Uh, and and those teams were probably better defensively than this team was. But this team only allowed 19.4 points per game. That's the 13th fewest of any team in the country. They also played the third toughest schedule of any team in the country. So if you look at that, it's, it's almost a case of n- none of the other high-flying offensive teams that could be comparable to this Alabama team were even in remotely the same neighborhood defensively. And by this same contrast, none of the the great defensive teams are really in the same neighborhood as Alabama offensively. So you could look at them as being like the best offensive, great defensive team or the best defensive, great offensive team. You know, it's really kind of the best of both worlds. And I think that's how you end up with this kind of culmination of the Nick Saban era in which they, they really don't have any kind of glaring flaws that you could exploit on on either side of the ball it is funny that we we like can't (laughs) we have to we see this offense and we think oh my god Alabama is this great offensive team and like they're also still good on defense like we can't like put those two things together it's it's hard to like remember both things um which I find kind of hilarious I think we're conditioned to do that because of those Oklahoma teams and some of those, you know, spread teams where we just have this default assumption that they only play shootouts and a team can't in some ways can't play like that and also still have a good defense. And in some ways, your points per game allowed are inflated because you're playing, you know, at such a fast pace or you're scoring so frequently that you're giving the other team possessions with which to score. Whereas if you kind of grind things out, you, they, they have the ball less. The opponent, uh, you know, doesn't have as many chances to score. So I think it's almost doubly impressive that Alabama allowed fewer than 20 points per game while also scoring so much. And and uh, by necessity, there are so many possessions in these games because they're, they're scoring so quickly. Someone pointed out something ridiculous, which is they went back and, um, showed the Alabama's uh, 2017 recruiting class, which could, if you, you know, based on mock drafts, could have eight first round picks on offense alone. How did they not win? Like last year, they should. I mean, the talent. How did LSU beat them last year? I like I'm sort of amazed when you look at all of those together. I mean, that LSU team was was something special. And I think that's really that's really you. the way to beat this team is you have to have, you know, all the stars align. Yeah. Yeah. A once in a lifetime team. <laughs> and, and, and I think people don't, you know, give Mac Jones enough credit, you know, 
for all the talk of what Burrow did last year, you look on paper, or at least statistically, what Mac Jones is doing is not that different at all. Um, on a similar caliber offense, it's it's really it's really almost a a very similar team in terms of the way they can just score at will, you know, against their opponent on any drive. It seems the kind of team where, like, if you punt once, it feels like the game is over. It is. It it is interesting how which players are judged by the players around them and which aren't. I think the narrative on Mac Jones was that he wasn't. He was a caretaker quarterback. He was like, you know, the guy in between Tua and and their next great quarterback, um, Bryce Young, who played a little bit last night. And in fact, he was quite good. And will, you know, I have no idea if that's going to translate to the NFL, but it'll be it'll be interesting to see who takes him. It feels yeah. like the Vikings are going to take him. Oh Doesn't boy. It? Doesn't oh that boy. feel right? That seems right. <laughs> well, and that is funny. I mean, I think this is kind of the inverse of we've talked often about how these like stereotypes in player comparisons for, you know, in the in the NBA or other sports where, you know, you see somebody who's physically looks like, uh, you know, someone that we already know. Often race plays uh, a big part in that as well. Uh, and, and you kind of default to these assumptions. So I think a lot of people might look at Mac Jones and think A.J. McCarron or, you know, some of these lesser talented kind of white guy, Alabama, uh, you know, caretaker quarterbacks and not necessarily look anywhere beyond that and, and look at the numbers. Uh, and and I think he's probably better than A.J. McCarron, who, by the way, yeah. has carved out a career as a, you know, backup, uh, one of the better backups in the league for a long time. So so no insulting him. Uh, if that's the the floor of the potential, then probably the ceiling is pretty high. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, so now that the season is is, you know, fully over, what what can we make of it looking back on it? You know, what are your takeaways from this season as a whole? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm kind of conflicted about it because I think in the end, the best team won, the system worked, you know, so uh, to whatever extent you can say, you know, if the goal is to allow a team as talented as Alabama to have a chance to win the national championship in 2020, that did happen. And they took advantage of that opportunity and played amazing. And I think we'll, in some ways, remember this as, you know, we won't necessarily remember it even as much for all of the COVID-related stuff because a team like Alabama um, was so plainly the best team and they did win. And it kind of continues that trend that we talked about um, a couple weeks ago about amid all the chaos, the best teams have tended to win. In terms of everything else, you know, I think the the low point of the season in some ways was the decision by the Big Ten to go back on their own rule to shoehorn Ohio State into the um, championship game. Uh, and that just confirmed everything that we already knew about college football and how you know, it's really about money and the conferences are not necessarily interested in even being consistent in their own processes. And then, of course, you add in just the insistence on playing in the pandemic, no matter what the cases were like, no matter what, you know, the, the risk was. You know, I think that that it, in some ways it was the most college football of all college football seasons because it did give us this amazing Alabama team. And it also gave us all the contradictions, all the hypocrisy, all of the corruption that it made more clear than ever before, you know, and made just kind of plain and out and out in the open. I don't know. I, I think it was a complete mess and maybe it shouldn't have happened. Maybe everyone should have got together and looked at Alabama's roster and looked at that recruiting class I was just talking about and, and said, yeah. Let's not bother. I'm kidding. But it does feel like it was done irresponsibly. 
and a lot of people got COVID. There was a lot of sort of ugliness. I mean, and, and the frustrating thing is to look at that that number that everyone cited about Northwestern not having one uh, COVID case all year, at least going into the title game. I don't know if they have one since. That it, it could have been done better, and it just wasn't. Um, and it just, I, you know, I, I think back in the middle of the season where we were canceling, I'm not trying to be a downer here, but I guess I am, um, <laughs> where we were canceling at least, you know, a dozen games every week. And it for it just feels like this sport as a whole needs is a little more organization. I don't know if that's possible with these different, uh, obviously competing conferences and no real strong central body. But it, it it does feel like you you take this whole scenario of how COVID unfolded and especially how it unfolded in the beginning, and then you take this mess, you know, with the playoff like. There's room for improvement in this sport <laughs> that is very popular, and it, it probably starts with with the NCAA um, taking some sort of control over this. Yeah, I think I think you guys both make really good points. I, I'm not sure I'll you know in 20 years I'm not sure I'll remember that this was the season that was the COVID season. Like I'm not sure they'll be like linked because the season did play out very much the same. Like it normally does, except for all the other stuff. And so, like, how will we remember that? We'll remember sports being disrupted by a pandemic. We'll remember the like questionable decisions made and and how the public health threat was dealt with. I'm not sure we'll remember that in relation to, oh, right, an Alabama beat Ohio State 52 to 24. You know, I, I just I think it'll be really hard to separate this one out. I was thinking for my, you know, for my own fandom, this was a great college football season. And I it definitely was not a great year. So I'm not sure I'm going to remember those like together. Great no, year I for Iowa State. And it's going to be so exciting to see what Matt Campbell does as the next coach of the New York Jets. He's he's already <laughs> turned them down, my friend. Sorry. He's interviewing again. <laughs> you're going to be stuck with he Doug Peterson and you're going to like it. He turned us down the last time. He's got another job interview. He's coming back. Doug he's Peterson. Back. Don't say that. Doug yeah, Peterson, the next coach of the Jets. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we can leave this here for now. Let's take a break and we'll be back in a moment to talk about sports and politics. A lot has happened this week outside of our sports bubble. There was, of course, an insurrection last Wednesday in Washington, D.C., when supporters of President Trump stormed the Capitol and halted Congress's certification of the 2020 election results for hours. Five people died. That came the day after the Senate runoff in Georgia. With the election of Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, Democrats will have control of that body, with Vice President-elect Kamala Harris breaking any ties. Over the past 10 months or so, we have done a lot of talking on this sports podcast about things that are not sports, which is far from our preference. 538 already has a fantastic podcast about politics. It also has another awesome podcast about the pandemic. And you should listen to both of those if you aren't already. But things keep happening that are much bigger than sports, but that pull sports in. And so it feels weird not to address what happened this past week here on Hot Takedown, particularly when those things do directly affect sports. For instance, the PGA of America announced on Sunday that it was canceling its agreement to hold the 2022 PGA Championship at the Trump Bedminster Golf Course in New Jersey. There's also the work of WNBA players who boosted Raphael Warnock's profile in time to make him competitive and eventually help him defeat Kelly Loeffler in Georgia. So we're going to talk a little bit about that and how 
how effective sports organizations and figures are at effecting political change. On ESPN Daily, Atlanta Dream Forward Elizabeth Williams discussed her team's endorsement of Warnock as an extension of the social justice work the WNBA has been engaged in for years. So for us, we wanted to make sure that as we continued our work in social justice and we continued to promote voting and, and registering to vote, um, we also stayed true to ourselves um, as WNBA players. And so we wanted to support a candidate who supported a lot of things that we did, could progress this country. And ironically enough, you know, his seat and Ossoff's seat ended up being the seats to flip the entire Senate. So it's it's been really powerful to see. Neil, what data do we have on the kind of impact the WNBA's endorsement of Warnock actually had? Yeah, so there was a great story by Angela Delavoye, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, um, uh, at the Monkey Cage blog at the Washington Post, where she did an analysis of basically looking at the point at which um, the WNBA players began really promoting Raphael Warnock with t-shirts uh, and and sort of trying to uh, drum up support in terms of donations and all of these things. Uh, and you can really see a clear change in the polls uh, from that point onward, so in the 48 hours after the T-shirt campaign began, that was on August 4th, Warnock's campaign raised $183,000 and attracted 3,500 new grassroots donors. And really, our own polling average uh, at 538, you can see this uptick in in the curves for uh, Warnock against Lieberman, his uh, Democratic uh, competition, uh, and even compared with Leffler and Collins, the two Republican uh, frontrunners where Warnock's support really skyrockets after August 4th. Now, uh, she was uh, careful to point out that there were other things that were happening, uh, that it's kind of difficult to disentangle everything that was happening. They they played a role along with all of these other Democratic endorsements in consolidating support behind Warnock, which was ended up being really important because whereas Collins and Leffler really were kind of splitting the Republican support, Warnock had almost all of the Democratic support behind him late in that race. And that's what ultimately forced the runoff because of the policy in Georgia um, that if you don't break a certain threshold or you don't have a uh, majority instead of a plurality of of the voting support, you have to go to this runoff. Uh, and, and that's what got him into that. And then we, we all saw what happened last week and really historic achievement for Democrats in my home state of Georgia. Uh, and so I, I think that uh, it's it's kind of part of all of the, the trends that we saw over the summer with the NBA, the WNBA and various other sports groups, the, the Players Coalition. It's interesting how things shifted at first when they were sort of going up against Leffler and speaking out against her. But the bigger shift happened when they flipped it around and instead of being anti-Leffler, it was pro-Warnock. Yeah. Uh, and that was around the time that his support really kind of coalesced among all Democrats in that race. Yeah, I mean, and, and we should point out too, you know, because of the circumstances of of the sports over the summer and, you know, how things had stopped and then we're back and and the WNBA was back a little bit before the NBA. They also had a ton of games on TV for the first time. So I think you can't miss the impact of those players coming out in Vote Warnock t-shirts. You know, working for 538, we have, I feel like I have, I know a lot more about 
politics in specific states than I would if I were just a regular person. But I think a lot, you know, people weren't focused on the Georgia Senate race in August. And when you see those players wearing a T-shirt like that, you're like, wait, what's what's going on there? Who is that person? I think that was the case for a lot of people. And it raised that consciousness in a way that um, that wasn't going to happen nationally. That couldn't really have happened without an event like that nationally. Um, and and you know, no matter what else happened in that race, that had a huge, you know, visual impact right away, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we see the WNBA and the NBA as being, you know, leagues that already have a lot of liberal support. Uh, and so they might be more inclined to support uh, certain candidates from a particular part of the political spectrum. But like we pointed out, when baseball took a pause because of the Jacob Blake shooting over the summer, that, I think, was really a telling sign about where things might be headed, that you have these leagues that have a lot more broad bipartisan support also, you know, wading into some of these polarizing um, areas. And so I, I don't know if we'll see outright, you know, NFL players in mass endorsing particular candidates, but we there was no love lost uh, between them and Trump. We know that. Uh, so I, I don't know. So much of this goes, uh, you know, is, is around the question that we have about politics going forward in general uh, as Joe Biden becomes president. Is the Trump era going to recede and maybe, uh, you know, some of the normalcy of the earlier times in which, like you alluded to, Jeff, where athletes were maybe less vocal, will that return? Or are we sort of past, have we crossed the Rubicon and we're sort of past the point where things can can ever be depoliticized, uh, in which case you might expect more of this going forward? Well, and speaking of a, of a sport that is not not liberal is definitely more on the typically on the on the conservative side of things is golf. Jeff, what do you think about the PGA's choice to move a major away from a Trump course? I, this Maggie Haberman quote kind of says it all from The New York Times uh, the other day. She wrote, he's angry about impeachment. People who have spoken to him say, but the reaction to the PGA decision was different, was a different order of magnitude. Just think about that for a second. He's angry about getting impeached for the second time, but losing this golf tournament is a different order of magnitude. I mean, that shows how important this is to him. And and by the way, um, this is part of a trend. I mean, I know this tournament and, and there are probably people in the PGA that were dying to shed his name from their event. Um and they were waiting for the opportunity is my guess. And that's based a lot on 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 around the world what has been going on with Trump courses. I mean, we saw, you know, Doral used to host that uh, WGC event and that got moved early in his presidency to Mexico, which he was furious about. The his course in Turnberry has been uh, completely dropped. It was a staple uh, of of the British Open rotation. It's been dropped from that. And that doesn't seem that won't change in the foreseeable future unless I think he sells that course. And you, you look back uh, to that, uh, you know, the reporting by the Times in, in last summer when they were saying that he was trying to get Woody Johnson, the owner of the Jets, who's the ambassador to the UK, to lobby the RNA to get the British Open back in Turnberry because he was so furious about it. So I think, you know, it's a it's a big deal for Trump. Um, golf will easily uh, find another place to have that event. And they'll probably be uh, pretty happy about it. You know, I spent Wednesday, basically, I basically stopped <laughs> doing my normal sports editing job and was glued to the events of, of that day. 
And then over the weekend, it was like, while I'm watching football, this is comforting, but also like very, very removed from this like actual real turmoil that's happening in the in the country. And I'm I'm retreating to my safe, you know, bubble of sports. And I don't even know if that's I don't know how to feel about that. I just don't know how to reconcile being a sports fan and working within working within sports during a time of incredible upheaval and political crisis after political crisis. So much so that normal thing, things that would normally be huge crises are just sort of like we forget about them almost immediately, um, which is not just not a great way to live. I, I just I don't know how to reconcile that. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts about <laughs> how to reconcile that or if this is just like the place we live in now. Yeah, it did feel weird watching the NBA the night of Wednesday after what had happened and sort of just being like, you know, like, do we have the basic structures of a country anymore? Yeah. Um, as time passed, days passed, it, it I don't know, maybe it, it, I don't know how apt the comparison is, but we've talked often about sports after national tragedies being... Um, You know, people get a welcome, just sort of respite from them and how we were actually lacking that earlier in the year or I guess last year now. It feels like, can we, by the way, also agree that 2020 is not over yet? Yeah, 2020 did not start until March of 2020. It was still 2019 before that. And it will not end until uh, the the virus cases start to go down. And then, only then can we embrace 2021. But uh, yeah, so I think we talked earlier in 2020 about how um, not having sports at all in the pandemic um, in the early phase was really terrible, um, and and not just for us having to talk about it and wanting to have things to cover as part of our jobs, but also just not having that, you know, as sort of a psychic relief, you know, and being able to sort of like not be on all the time and plugged into this stuff. You know, it's not fair for us to just be like, shut up and dribble and give us our distraction. But at the same time, I do think that we can appreciate the fact that that we do have sports at least at a time like this is, you know, good for the mental health of um, regular people. You know, it's such a strange, the virus obviously is unique in that it affects the actual, you know, attendance at sports and the fact that, you know, with a few strange exceptions, by the way, how many fans did the Titans have at that game? It seemed like too many, but um, (laughs) it it affects the actual, you know, going to sports experience. And, but it's also what's going on now, um, you know, politically is so divisive, you know, it's not really comparable to that, the role sports played in 2001, 20 years ago, after 9-11, you know, you think back to that Yankees run, you know, to the World Series, or you think back, you know, to the Piazza, a home run in the first game back over the Braves, which I consider honestly probably top five sports moment of my life watching that um, and, and the NFL returning and all that, I, you know, it, it, it was it it served a role to bring us together when we were all, you know, sort of in it together. But we're not all in it together right, right. now. This is, right. you know, dividing us. And sports is now mixing with politics in a way it never has before. So it's in many ways, you know, it doesn't have this sort of cure all effect that it had 20 years ago. So it really is uncharted territory. And 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 that's scary. Um, 
that's a that's a scary place that I don't think we, we certainly haven't been in my lifetime in a, in a long time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to mention there was I thought an interesting I took a little exception with some of it, but an interesting story by Michael Rosenberg at Sports Illustrated that said uh, he said we don't need sports right now. I take exception with that. I think we do. I think it's weird that someone from Sports Illustrated would say we don't need sports, but uh, we, we can press onward because his larger point was that uh, sports ground us in a sense of reality when it comes mm-hmm. to even things basic like winning or losing. Trump can contest the election on the basis of nothing and get people to believe him, many people to believe him and repeat his lies the, the, in a way that if he had lost a football game, you know, there's no denying that. It's not like um, Ohio State can come out. They can make excuses and have, by the way, uh, for <laughs> losing to Alabama, but they cannot uh, argue with the scoreboard. And I think the mentality of, look, the electoral count, that's the scoreboard. You know, you lost. These are incontrovertible facts. That's something that Obviously, it's not only that we get from sports, but it is a parallel where no coach of a losing team would say, we did not lose this game because the score is right there to look at. And I think that that grounds us in a sense of we need to have clear wins and clear losses and and incontrovertible scoreboard-like truths. And sports provide that to us. That's a great point. And I, I feel like this, you know, this baseball season when there's, you know, uh, inevitably some team will protest a game. Um, I'm going to not have very much patience for that. <laughs> no, that's the score. We're going to move on. No, I think that's a great point. And that does, you know, help us understand sports, help us understand the world around us that they have always done that. Um, and I think that's something that's important to remember and, and, and use that going forward. Well, <sighs> There'll be more sports, more sports this weekend, more football, um, hockey. My goodness. Do you think we'll still have an Olympics this year? That's a great question. That is a good I question. saw some stuff actually about how 80% of Japanese citizens think that there should not be the Olympics this year. Uh, so I, I think that we should keep an eye on that going forward. Yeah, I, I think how the vaccine is rolled out in the next couple of months will go a long way to to knowing that. I think if we're still largely unvaccinated in March, then it it will probably feel like no. But if we're making good progress on getting people vaccinated, I think I think they'll go ahead with it because as we've seen across sports, you know, the money to be made with sports is going to be the driver in making these sports happen. So it's up to us to like do the work to to make it safe and and make those big events like the Olympics happen. Yeah, it's just it's tricky with the the global aspect of it because you know the vaccine distribution in this country is one thing. The vaccine distribution around the world is an even trickier thing and and you will have countries from from every corner of the world there. So I I'm curious to see how it happens, how it unfolds with that I'm just, event. I'm trying to keep like stay realistic while I really want the Olympics to happen, but I'm trying to like stay grounded in what's really actually going on. Um, Maybe that's how we'll know when 2020 is finally over because they are are the 2020 Olympics. They're going to continue to call them that even though they're happening in 2020. That'll be the end. All right. We can end this here for now. There'll still be a lot to talk about in the intersection of politics and sports, undoubtedly in the months to come. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. We often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. 
Neil, take it away. Yeah, today uh, we are going to celebrate your favorite sport, Sarah. I don't know how much longer I'm going to make that joke because Forever, I think probably. you don't hate hockey. I don't know, but we're going to talk about hockey on the rabbit hole. Um, so, yes, the NHL season is going to uh, start again on uh, Wednesday with some games. One fewer than was originally scheduled because the Dallas Stars have uh, COVID already. So that's a good start. Uh, it's going to be a 56-game uh, season instead of the usual 82. Uh, and there's a lot of weird realignment in terms of the divisions. So they split things up out of necessity as much as anything to put all of the Canadian teams in one division, the North Division, which is great. Uh, because because of rules about being able to travel across the U.S.-Canada border without having to have a 14-day mandatory quarantine. Uh, so th th that was something that affected other Canadian teams. And this is actually something that we saw with other teams in other sports. For instance, the Toronto Raptors are based in Tampa, at least in the early part of this NBA season. And uh, we saw this with the Blue Jays, too. They had to play their home games in Buffalo. Uh, so we've seen this happen with other Canadian teams. But Canada, uh, hockey being the specifically Canadian sport of all sports, uh, just headed that off early and was like, we're going to keep our Canadian team safe and you know secure up in, uh, up in Canada. Uh, and it should be a good division. The, you, you have pretty much every team in there except for the Ottawa Senators are expected to be good. Uh, or at least competitive. Uh, and so I think that that should be good as a byproduct of that. So because of the four division setup, you had the top four teams from each division making the playoffs, and then they will play each other in a couple of rounds. And then the team to emerge from that will be guaranteed a spot in the conference finals, basically. So we could see a we're guaranteed at least one Canadian team. Well, only one Canadian team making it uh, to within a series win of the Stanley Cup finals. Of course, Canada has not won the Stanley Cup since the Montreal Canadiens did it in 1993. So that's a storyline to watch. Uh, one of the other things that we looked at, Terrence Doyle, our hockey writer, and I, we used our goals above replacement metric to try to figure out which team got better and which teams got worse over the offseason and whether that will matter for the playoff picture. Uh, for instance, the defending champion Tampa Bay Lightning, they're still expected to be good, but they were one of the teams that had one of the worst offseasons. In fact, the worst offseason of all when you account for the fact that Nikita Kucherov, their best player, was injured and will miss at least all the regular season, if not more, go going into this year. So uh, his loss is big and we expect Tampa to be slightly diminished uh, as a result, uh, maybe more than just slightly, but they still have a lot of great players on board even after losing arguably the best um, skater in the game. Uh, we also have our eyes on the Colorado Avalanche, which was a team that sort of had a breakout last year, but they also had the 12th best offseason of any team, which is yeah, generally we found a pattern where the teams that had the best offseasons, like the Red Wings and, and your Devils, Jeff, uh, were also the worst teams. They just got better almost addition by subtraction, getting rid of some of their underperforming players, bringing in, you know, uh, some some new players with cap room and, and giving younger players a chance. But interestingly, the Avalanche and also the Maple Leafs, the Washington Capitals, teams like that, those were teams that maybe have aspirations to more and also were among the teams that 
improve the most over the offseason. So the Avalanche should be pretty good this year. Bring back the olden days of those uh, 90s and, and 2000s uh, Colorado teams. And the Leafs are an interesting team. They always are. They never seem to really capitalize on the talent that they have. They still have a lot of talent. Uh, they had a pretty good offseason. They ranked ninth in our offseason rankings. Uh, and they were already good on paper last year. It didn't necessarily translate into uh, much in the in the playoffs. Um, but, you know, that's another team where they're the only original six team to not win a Stanley Cup since the NHL expanded beyond six teams back in 1967. And they've generally been kind of a laughingstock, almost like the New York Knicks of hockey. Uh, so it would be interesting to see them, you know, make some kind of bid at the Stanley Cup. Maybe the All-Canada division will will help them there. Um, and we're also interested in in some recent champs like the Blues and the Capitals. Those uh, Both of those teams had pretty good off-seasons. They brought in some interesting names. Uh, the Blues brought in Tori Krug, who was a defense for the Bruins uh, and one one of the best players available in the offseason. The Capitals added former Bruins Zdeno Chara. He's a little past his prime, uh, but they they seem to have improved slightly on net uh, over the offseason. Uh, and the Bruins might be down um, after losing all of those guys, but you know, uh, they they were arguably the best team in the regular season last year, so they have a little room to to fall off. And of course, we will have our eyes on the rookie class. We don't have numbers for them. Obviously, they have not played yet, so we don't know what their goals of replacement will be. But uh, Alexis Lafreniere, the number one overall pick, seems like he's going to get regular duty right away with the Rangers uh, at age 19. He seems to already be making an impact uh, with his teammates. There's a guy named Kirill Kaprizov uh, who played in the uh, Russian KHL, but uh, he's 23. He's making his debut in the NHL with the Minnesota Wild, ostensibly Sarah's favorite hockey team. I, I'm not totally sure, um, <laughs> but he could be a player to watch. Um, and of course, uh, Igor Shesterkin of the Rangers is sort of the heir to Henrik Lundqvist, um, who who left the Rangers this offseason, went to the Capitals, and then actually has to miss the season because of a heart problem. But this uh, Shesterkin led all goalies in save percentage last year, um, all qualified goalies goalies. And if he's given the chance to start, Rangers could be an interesting team with all these new faces. But I'm just excited for hockey to have started. It seemed uh, through all the challenges between the virus, between labor controversies, uh, late in the process of the offseason, the owners were like, oh, by the way, could you uh, withhold more salary? Thanks. Uh, and, and it seemed like it might derail the whole process. But for maybe the first time ever, the owners and the players came together and actually acted like adults, which is rare for hockey. Uh, and and agreed to make the season happen. I think they're looking at a new TV contract going forward and, and a lot of ways to maybe grow the league. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how it works out. We had a very chalky year last year with the uh, the Lightning winning as favorites. But usually we see a lot of chaos in hockey. We saw that a couple of years ago when basically all the, the top seeds lost in the first round instantly. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's going to be uh, another wide open season with a lot of teams that could potentially win the Cup and uh, I'm excited to see it. I, should I become a Rangers fan? This is what Ooh. I'm. I'm trying. I I feel like my well, problem that won't is make Jeff happy. I know. Oh, my problem in New York. I get it. Right. My problem is I don't have a team. And so just like watching when I don't know that, you know, I don't really have a team in the NBA, but I like have watched basketball my whole life. And so I can turn on a game and it's not like what is happening on this in on my TV where it is like that in hockey. And I feel like if I had a team to follow, I would more get into what 
I was doing that helped me with soccer when I adopt, when I, when I adopted Tottenham as my soccer team. So, yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons to it. I I think Lafreniere is a great player to build around and they were sort of lucky that they kind of had their cake and ate it too. Last year, they were able to make that playoff appearance technically, or what, you know, if we call it a playoff appearance and then they lost and they're like, Oh, by the way, we're eligible in the lottery and we won it. And we're taking the number one overall pick. Uh, our Timmy Panarin, the bread man is a great player for them to build around. If you like fun names, Mika Zabinijad is another one. Um, uh, I think they retained Chris Kreider, signed him to a contract. So they have some good young players to build around. Uh, I would advise you not to look at Tony D'Angelo's uh, social media uh, presence uh, if, if you want to make that team watchable and at all enjoyable. Um, and like I said, Shesterkin, great uh, up-and-coming goalie. Um, and oh, I got to mention Capo Caco. Uh, I, I was wondering. I was shocked you hadn't mentioned Capo 19 Caco. Year old, 19 year old right winger um, who, uh, you know, people have been kind of talking up, waiting for him to make an impact. So they do have the potential going forward. I think this season it might be a little bit of a struggle because of the way that the, uh, the alignment went. The East is going to be really difficult. That's my only word of caution with that. But you can build the, the start the building blocks now, even if sure. they don't make the playoffs, and then look for forward to the post realignment um chances which I should feel like be better one one thing you should know about my fandom at this point is that i'm very comfortable with Losing. mediocre teams <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think you should root. I have a pitch. You should root for the Winnipeg Jets because how far from Manitoba did you were you you were close enough. I have been to Winnipeg, in fact, as a there child. There you go. Yeah. You know, Manitoba was a stone's throw away from you. No, it wasn't. <laughs> so, a very long stone's throw. If you could throw a stone over an entire state. Um, so they're a fun team, Sarah. They're a fun team. They're a fun team, too. <laughs> they are, yeah. If they, Especially if they keep Patrick Liney. And, uh, yeah, I know my friends at TSN 1290 Winnipeg, uh, if they're listening to this, they will uh, appreciate your support, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I do like that you have friends at an international radio station. That makes me very but, happy. Or you could root for the um, obnoxious fans and James Dolan-owned team. Oh, that's a good that point. hasn't won in uh, 27 years or something. All right. Clearly, I need to do more research into who should be my hockey team um listeners i'm taking uh taking suggestions oh yeah um, send sarah an email with your uh your <laughs> hockey team or, pitch or just tweet at me don't don't send me an email <laughs> <laughs> you can send me an email if you want all right send I think, her an email uh, <laughs> i think you that's a good her. place you to leave uh, she sent her self-addressed stamped envelope yeah <laughs> carrier pigeon is the only way i'll receive suggestions all right thank you for that rabbit hole neil that will do it for this week's show we'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in our virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.